podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we have an episode, a new segment that what we like to call Watering Wednesday. It's that time in the middle of the week where you are just feeling a little bit down. Maybe your faith feels a little dry and you are to get watered so that you can continue to water your world, whether you're at home, whether you're at the workplace, whether you're at the gym or whether you are in the middle of the bush. We want to be able to water your faith so that you can then go and turn water your world. Now, there's a lot going on in our world today, and it doesn't take a genius to just see that the world is not the way that it should be. And I don't know if you're like me or not, but you open up your phone, you might go to your news app, and you read a couple headlines, and you find yourself getting very, very frustrated. It gets so bad, you just want to turn it off. I know that I get frustrated at the world all the time because I find that the world is always fighting against my faith, whether that's in the news and politics or in the media, online, movies, TV shows. It seems everywhere that I turn, there is this battle going on. But it's inevitable. Jesus said as much. Jesus actually told us this stuff. In John chapter 15, verse 18 through 19, we read this. If the world hates you, Remember that it hated me first. The world would, ha- would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. You know, Paul talked about this quite a bit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, he gives us a pretty amazing insight. He says, But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolishness to them, or foolish to them, and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. The Bible says, actually, that there are three people, three kinds of people. There's the natural person, the natural man, those who don't have the Spirit of God, just us in our our normal, original kind of form. The Bible talks a great deal about this natural man. I don't know if you're familiar with these texts or not, but I want to just take a a quick deep dive into who the natural man is. You know, the natural man doesn't know God, according to Galatians 4.8. He has no gratitude to to God, according to Romans 2.21. Has no desire for God, Romans 3.11. Now, I'm not talking about people who, who... to have to talk about God all the time. That's not what this text is talking about. I mean, there are plenty of people when you go online that mention God casually in conversation, but it's not the biblical God. It's a God of their own making. It's this moral therapeutic deity, and they really have no desire to obey the Bible, the God of the Bible. And this natural man is like that. Really, he has no love for God, according to 1 John 4, 10 has no faith in God, according to John 3.18, has no fear of God, Romans 3.18, and definitely does not worship God, according to Romans 1.21 and 25. In fact, this natural man resists truth, according to 2 Timothy 3.8, rejects God's truth, according to 2 Thessalonians 2.12, and disobeys God's gospel, according to 2 Thessalonians 1.8, and is in fact an enemy of God. Romans 5.10. That's, that's the natural man or natural person's attitude toward God. But it's in this attitude that determines really the relationship that they have with God. 
The Bible says that this natural person is far from God, according to Ephesians 2.17, is guilty before God, Romans 3.19, is condemned by God, according to John 3.18, and under God's wrath, according to John 3.36, John 3.36, alienated from the very life that God gives, Ephesians 4.18, without God in this life, according to Ephesians 2.12, and is without God in the life to come. That's, that's the natural man. And I know I've given you a lot of text right there, but it's imperative that we understand this. Because if we continue just to go around in our everyday lives, we're always going to be frustrated and we forget that the natural man cannot know God in their natural state. So that's the first person that the Bible talks about. But then there is the spiritual person. This is the person who has received Christ as their king, the Lord and Savior of their life. And when they did that, they received the Spirit of God when they believed. It is this person that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.15, those who are spiritual can evaluate all things but they themselves cannot be evaluated by others. He's saying there that there is an aspect of spiritual discernment, of spiritual truth that is revealed to those who truly have the Spirit of God. And that's just a quick look at the spiritual person. But there's a third, the person who's called the carnal person. You know, Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, When I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would spiritual people. I had to talk as though you belonged to this world or as though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger. And you still aren't ready, for you're still controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous of one another and quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove you are controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world? When one of you says... I'm a follower of Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos. Aren't you acting like the people of the world? Now, I bring all this up because over the past year, I've been walking us through the book of Acts, and we've come upon Acts chapter 9. It's the commonly known as the conversion of Paul. But I want to park on actually the first two verses of this chapter for a moment. Because here we see Paul as the natural man. And remember, Paul wrote that passage we just read in 1 Corinthians. So he knew all too well what the natural man and the carnal man, what what that was all about in the spiritual man. He could write about this because he lived it. That was him. I mean, he wasn't the carnal man. No, he he was devout. He was devoted. He was pursuing or thought he was pursuing. He wasn't engaging in the acts of the flesh. We can't say that he's carnal, and we can't say that he's spiritual because he wasn't following Jesus yet. That was to come later on in Acts chapter 9. So that leaves us with the natural man. Now, I understand that this designation is very unfamiliar to us today. Natural, carnal, spiritual. I mean, who talks about that anymore? It appears that we're so desperate to get a win in the culture wars that we're willing to put up anybody online or in person, some of these people that are celebrities, and we say, hey, here's a Christian, here's a Christian, here's a Christian. And you look at their lives and you go, they're not following Jesus. They might say God's name. They might say they're a Christian, but their life really doesn't represent that. But we give them a pass because we're so desperate to have someone validate our faith who's in that celebrity culture. 
Well, that just messes everything up and it constantly confuses people who are trying to find out who Jesus is. That's why we have to go back to the word of God and say, what does the Bible show us about who we really are and what does it really mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? So that's what we're going to look at today. And we're going to use Paul, actually called then called Saul, as a template. So in Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through 2, we read this. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. Now let me pause here for a moment. You have to remember that Saul was giving approval to the death of Stephen at the end of Acts chapter 7. So here we have him now fully getting ramped up. I mean, we got the introduction to him. He's there holding everybody's tunics as they're picking up stones, trying to get make sure their arms are free so they can make sure that they get Stephen really, really good. So we have here now, Saul is was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Now, here we have our hated Saul before he became our precious Paul. And again, we saw him at the end of Acts chapter 7 when Stephen was killed. He was there holding everybody's tunics as they picked up stones, offering a hearty amen, brother. Pick up another stone. That's great. I'll take your coat. Because he thought Stephen was a complete heretic and he wanted to root out these followers of the way. We see his zeal knew no bounds. Remember, this guy was a Pharisee, one of the top religious leaders of the day. And he wasn't just a normal Pharisee. He was of the Ivy League Pharisees. He wasn't just there because of his mighty intellect, but because of his passion and zeal for God, or, or at least he thought. See, the natural man can be pretty religious, can he not? He was what I like to call a natural naysayer. Do you have any natural naysayers in your life? These are people that are zealous. They seem devout. They might even be moral and, and, and they might be the tops. And yet they just cannot get into Jesus. They can't believe your faith and they want to root you out. They want to bring you down and they want to keep you from doing what God wants you to do. I mean, we all have natural naysayers in our lives and they may not even be overt in it. I think the worst are those who just kind of look at you with pity and disgust and almost like you're just this very uneducated or you are not up to par or their intellect or their accomplishment or you're not a part of the Illuminati, if you will. And we see people like this. They seem religious on the outside. Their zeal, though, is really to keep us down and keep themselves up. Who And they want to keep the name of Jesus from going forward and want to stop you from doing what God desires you to do. And who he wants you to be, moreover, than who he wants you, what he wants you to do. Now, we see a lot of the natural man in Saul. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath. I mean, every part of his life. He's like, oh, I've got to get rid of these guys. And he was eager to kill the Lord's followers. I mean, this guy is devoted. So he goes to the high priest. I mean, the top guy in the whole land. And he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Now, let's let's see some of the characteristics of this, this natural naysayer for a moment and use Saul as a template. 
See, here, here is a man with great devotion. He is devoted to God, or so he thinks. How many people are like that? They were really devoted. I'm constantly amazed at how many people post stuff about God online, but their life reveals that they really don't know God and they don't want to follow the word of God. And we have to be people of the word, even when it hurts. We can't just be at the buffet line, picking and choosing from God's word what we want or don't want. We have to be able to discern it. Yes, study it. Yes, and know how to apply it. But we can't just pick and choose what we like or what we don't like. I was talking to this guy not too long ago, and he basically made his own religion. He just took bits and pieces of Buddhism, of Hinduism, I mean, some astrology stuff, and then put Jesus on top. And he's like, that's fine. That's okay. Long as I'm sincere, right? No, no, you can be sincere and sincerely wrong about stuff. Just like the guy who ran, he grabbed the football on a fumble and he ran 65 yards and scored a touchdown, but he went the wrong way and he scored it for the wrong team. He was zealous in his run, but he was zealously mistaken. I mean, that's what we see today. People think as long as you're devoted or you're zealous, I don't want to offend you. Hey man, you do you, right? But the reality is, is they don't really know God. Let's, let's, let's examine this zeal here for a moment. Think about the rich young ruler for a moment in Luke chapter 18. Now, this is a guy that is devoted to God. He is what a person, I mean, a person that any pastor would be like lining up to have this guy in their church. I mean, think about it. He's young. He's hungry to know God. He's been obeying God and he's got money. All right. So I don't know of one pastor that's not going to go, hey, bring him in. You're a young guy. You love God. You're quoting Bible verses at me. I can tell you're a moral, moral guy. Oh, you got a nice car out there. You dress well. Oh, you're a tither. This is great. I mean, he's at Bible studies, he might be even a small group leader, and, and he's wealthy. Who wouldn't want a young, wealthy guy in church who hungers for God like that, right? We all would. But here's the deal. He didn't meet the cost of discipleship that Jesus lays down. See, he comes to Jesus, bows down, and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' first question is this, Why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? Basically, he's saying there's none good but God alone. And only God is truly good. And if I'm God, are you prepared to recognize me as God? I mean, that's really what's behind that question right there. Are you willing to recognize who I really am? But Jesus goes on in verse 20. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. See, he starts with six, seven, eight, nine. And then he goes back to five. Honor your father and mother. But the man replies, I've, obe I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Oh, wow. What a guy. He's, he's been in Awana programs. He's been in Pioneers. He's been memorizing Bible verses for a long time. He gets great reports. He was in the Christian clubs at school. This is a great kid. This is a great young guy. We want to celebrate this guy. But Jesus gets right to the heart. I mean, even though he's adamant in his devotion, he's still the natural man. Because the natural man cannot accept the cost of discipleship. And Jesus knows this and lays it down. Verse 22. 
When Jesus heard his answer, he said, There is still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. What did he have to give up? The one thing that was keeping him from full devotion to Jesus. You know, God does that with us. And it's different for each person. I mean, what's that one thing that you're holding on to that you don't want to give to God? What relationship? Money? Job? Status? Power? Prestige? Reputation? What is it? There was one thing that was keeping him from full devotion to Jesus. And long as there is that one thing, then that's everything. See, we have to give everything. We can't give God half. We can't even give three quarters or nine tenths. Nope, God wants it all. It's not about natural man's devotion. Nor is it about his position. You know, God doesn't really care about titles much. Saul was a Pharisee. The cream of the crop. I mean, he held the position of great esteem. And there are some out there who are spiritual directors, small group leaders, Sunday school teachers, Christian educators, deacons, elders, and pastors, people who have positions in the church, but they are still not part of God's kingdom because they have still not yielded in their heart. So it's not about our devotion. It's not about a position. And it's also not about connections. You ever heard that in business? It's not about what you know. It's about who you know, right? I mean, I remember my mentor telling me years ago, he said, in 10 years from now, you'll be no different than you are now, depending on three things. The choices you make, the people you know, and the books you read. Now, I'm sure he got that from someone else, but he was a wise man. And I found that to be very, very true. But we hear that all the time. It's not what you know, right? It's who you know. But here, this guy, Saul, he goes to who? The high priest. Now, I don't know if he knew the high priest, but chances are he did. Because he was the cream of the crop. And I'm sure that he stood out above his peers. Not only in his education, not in his knowledge, but in his passion, in his zeal. And I bet these guys were patting him on the back and just throwing, you know, trying to fan that flame the best that they could. And it says that he goes to the high priest. That's amazing. Not everybody could get to the high priest, but he does. And here's Saul having this incredible connection. He knows people. You know what, though? You can know so many people, but that doesn't get you into the kingdom. You can rub shoulders with celebrities who go to church or even celebrity pastors. That doesn't get you into the kingdom. It may get you some status in the eyes of others, but it doesn't get you the kingdom. Nor does education. Now, I'm not sure if you saw the news the other day, but there was an atheist that was appointed the chaplain at Harvard. Harvard. An atheist. See, that's where we're at right now in this world, where you can be spiritual but not religious, where you can go to Harvard and become the head chaplain and not even believe that God exists. That's crazy. Don't believe that the school a person goes to or the amount of education that they have is going to get them the kingdom of God. Paul had a phenomenal education. 
He was educated under the tutelage of Gamaliel, one of the most revered and sought after teachers of the day. I mean, this guy would have had his own YouTube channel. He'd been given, Gamaliel had TED Talks, okay? That's the modern day equivalent. He was one of the most sought after teachers of his day. But education does not get you the kingdom. No. Nor does a dynamic reputation. We get an idea of this in Acts 9 later on. When the Lord appears in a vision to Ananias and tells him to go to Judas's house on Straight Street, because Paul now has been blinded after he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he is waiting because he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias who's going to come and lay hands on him and help him recover his sight. And after God speaks, though, to Ananias, before he actually goes to see Saul, we get Ananias's response to what God says and a, and a glimpse into Saul's reputation. Acts chapter 9, verse 13 through 14. This is what he says. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. He knew who he was. He'd known about him. Word got around really quick about who Saul was and what he was doing. And the church was on high alert, head on a swivel. I mean, they are really watching out. They don't want to go to prison. They don't want their families to be left destitute. But you see here, Paul has this, or Saul, had this reputation. And that reputation, you can be zealous and have everybody think well about you. But that doesn't get you the kingdom either. That's still part of the natural man. I mean, that's what the natural man and woman is. Those who are devoid of the Spirit of God and truly at war with God. Perhaps this is you. If so, take heart because God intervenes. We're going to get to that next week. But I want to transition in verse 2 because we're going to see who the people are that are the spiritual men and women. Those who truly know God. And those are the people that Saul is after. So look at verse 2. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, very important there, back to Jerusalem in chains. Now here we have a picture of what I like to call the common Christian. We've talked about the naysayers, the natural naysayers, right? But here's really what I like to call the common Christian. Now, I know many people might bristle at that idea of a common Christian, right? There is no ordinary Christian. Eh. You know, several years ago, Michael Horton, theologian, wrote a book called Ordinary. In the book, he talks about how so many Christian leaders today are talking about stuff that is radical, crazy, transformative, and restless. Each one offers the next best thing. The worst thing in the world is to be ordinary after all, right? We don't want to be ordinary. But the truth is that as we keep going after the next big breakthrough, we become addicted to experiences and burning ourselves out on restless anxieties and unrealistic expectations. And that's what really drives me nuts sometimes when I go to church. I don't know if it's that way with you, but people are up there just trying to really hype things up. And that's not our job. Right? 
It's in the day to day. I'm not saying we don't need encouragement. I don't, I'm not saying we don't get excited, but I want hope, not hype. And there is a big difference. The truth is that we keep going after the next big breakthrough and we do become addicted to these experiences and we burn ourselves out on these restless anxieties and really unrealistic expectations. And yet we're like birds in a cage, moving around, getting all hyped up, flapping our wings, but we're not making any progress because it's not in the hype. It's not. If you go back over church history, is it in the hype? Is it the people that are shouting all the time and, and getting people fired up on a Sunday? No. And again, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it becomes a bad thing when it replaces the best thing. And those are in the everyday experiences, but no one wants to hear about that right now. You don't want to hear about that, right? You don't want to hear about taking time to pray and getting on your knees and seeking God or about fasting or about going through awkwardness and, and losing your reputation and having people think you're foolish or stupid, right? You don't want to hear that. You want to chase after something great and fuzzy and pretty and fun. Wee! No, no, that's not, that's not what we're about. That's not what the early church was about for sure. Now, again, I'm not saying we can't be joyous. We can't have excitement. No, don't, don't, mess, don't mess with me on that, okay? But here we see the common Christians, those who were really devoted, who really believed and were pursuing God. I mean, that's what this, this show is about. It's for those who really believe and want more and want to grow. And I'm not talking about more as in you're going to get this new ecstatic experience. No, but they, they want to go beyond the hype. They want to really get down to hope because they really need God and they want God and they believe in Christ and they believe the Bible and they want to know how to apply it in everyday life and how to live as a Christ follower in this culture. That's what I want. That's what I want for myself and that's what I want for you. I want you to grow. I want you to fulfill the purpose of God in your generation. I want to see you become more like Jesus. And I want to see you grow in your knowledge of God and grow in holiness and watch you leave a legacy as you seek to faithfully live that out in the day to day. There are so many believers that are doing just that and we never hear a word from them. But God does. God knows. That's why one of my most favorite stories is actually in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, where he describes this, this woman that they see through heaven's eyes. While on earth, you couldn't see her or notice her very much. She didn't stick out. She wasn't all that amazing or great. But then when she's revealed in eternity, she is so gorgeous because that's when everything is revealed. But see, this world wants to lull us to a spiritual sleep. The carbon monoxide of culture creeps in every which way, and it's so pleasurable and smells so good, and it just lulls us into a spiritual sleep. And we can't do that. We have to wake up. And these Christians, in Acts chapter 9, verse 2, were common believers, men and women alike, like you and me, with families, routines, responsibilities, jobs, trying to get through the day, trying to get what's best for their kids, trying to find safety, security, trying to enjoy peace or find peace. I mean, that's most of us too, right? Now, let's, let's zoom in for a bit because this text reveals some things about these people that I think we all need to see. 
some of the characteristics of what a common Christian really is. We get a small picture of that in verse 2. I mean, they were disciples of Jesus, which means that they were forgiven. That's the first part. That, that's what I want us to see. I mean, that's not exactly, that's not said right there in the text. It's not made explicit, but it's there to see that they are followers. They knew and trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They believed him to be the coming Messiah and had entered into his kingdom by faith and followed him as king. And at the end of the day, we, that's what we need to hang on to, that we are forgiven. Just like John Newton, right? That the guy who was a slaver and then he encountered Christ and he was transformed near the end of his life, they asked him, you know, what do you remember? And he talked about being a sinner and that God loves him. We have to hold on to that. And I know that's something that for many of us, it's become commonplace. Yeah, 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 we're forgiven. Yeah, 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 we're forgiven. Okay, it's great, but let's go on. No, we have to park and, and remind ourselves of that and preach that to ourselves and rediscover it all over again. We need forgiveness. And forgiveness can only be granted by God. As we read in Psalm 130, verse 4, Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who, O Lord, could ever survive? But you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. Do you need forgiveness? Then let me encourage you and give you hope. Embrace the cross. Run to the cross. See, the cross is for failures. It's for the brokenhearted, the screw-ups, those who know their rebellion and are ready to lay down their arms in sweet surrender knowing that Jesus paid the price for our sins on the cross and that we, by faith in him, can see ourselves crucified with Christ and that we can now be new creatures, a new creation. And the life we live is not the crucified life, but it's the resurrection life. Hmm. You know, a common Christian is not only forgiven, but it's one who is actively following Notice that they are called followers of the way. They were actively pursuing, running after God. Who or what are you running after? I think we're running after many things today. And I think we try to squeeze God in in order to make ourselves feel better. But we're not really following. I mean, we're all about followers. Just go on Twitter, go to Facebook. I mean, Instagram, we're all about followers. But a follower online is not like a follower was in the ancient world. A follower in the ancient world meant it was more like an apprenticeship where they were learning and doing. Who are we really following? They were followers of Jesus. And what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It means realizing who he is and how precious he is and giving up everything to have him. I just finished a pretty phenomenal book that we're going to be discussing in the next few weeks by a guy by the name of Nick Ripkin. Wrote a book called The Insanity of God. I interviewed him just this past week, and I'm excited that he's going to be featured in a future episode. And it is an awesome, awesome conversation. And it's convicting. And if you read his book, The Insanity of God, you will be convicted too. If you're unfamiliar with the book, let me give you just a little bit of an insight into it. 
Rifkin was a missionary in Somalia in the 80s and the 90s. He planted two churches of about 100 people each. And one of the local Muslim extremist groups came in and killed everyone. That, if that were all right there, that could be a book. But no, he, he continued on. He planted a second church. And it grew to be about 100 people each. And guess what happened? The extremist group came back in and killed everyone again. I can't imagine the heartache. I can't imagine what he had to deal with. I can't imagine the pain to know that there were children, husbands, wives, friends, those who were devoted, those who grew, those whose homes you fellowshiped in, those who you watched each other's kids, you, you live and did life together, and now they're gone. So he tries to plant a third time, but this time no one will come. The cost is too great. The imagination is filled and infected with fear. But it's a real, it's a real fear of what could happen. This discourages him. So he goes on a journey. He decides to go around to every country that has the persecuted church. And he, and he interviews the different leaders. And it takes him a while to find these different people. But he travels to over 70 countries and interviews over 600 people. It's incredible. And this book came as a fruit of that labor. And there are so many stories of people that are imprisoned, that are forced to watch their families go without food, without the father, to be unprotected, to be mocked, for the kids to be treated shamefully at school in front of their friends, berated by their teachers, to know that these men were suffering greatly, their families were suffering greatly. I can't imagine that. And yet, they persevered on. They stood and held fast. It's incredible to, to see how much they treasured Jesus. They continued to follow because they knew what they had in Christ. Are we following after Christ? Or are we pursuing something else? What is it that consumes your thoughts? Where does your money go? You know, the early church gave to God and to help others. They were not just followers, but they were fully devoted. We think that we're okay with not being fully devoted. That's for other people. That's for the, the super spiritual, right? Or maybe we think that we have the fire insurance policy that's good enough. You know, we want to cover all of our bases just enough and maybe cover a few other bases just so that it's all good in case this one doesn't work out. Hmm. But no, that's not how God works. I mean, we think if we got the fire insurance policy, that's great. Anything else is gravy. <laughs> but we would be really wrong. I mean, if the rich young ruler didn't show us that, then this part surely does. Notice that they were followers of the way. I love that description. I absolutely love it. It tells us so much. The way. Why is it called that? 
because they were living their life according to the teaching of their sovereign Jesus Christ. He is the king, and they dedicated themselves to following him in every sphere of their life. That's why Paul, in the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians, gives us the what's called commonly known as the household codes. This is how they were to behave as husbands, as fathers, as wives, as mothers, as children, as employees. This is how the household was to be ordered and structured. In order that people could see who Jesus is through their everyday lives. How they were living, how they were forgiving, how they were going about their work, how they treated their spouses, how they loved their children. And, and undoubtedly, they all failed at some point in time. But they learned how to keep a short account of sin, to seek forgiveness when necessary, to be upright in people of integrity. And when they've done wrong, to admit that wrong, confess it, to make restitution if necessary. And to seek forgiveness when they needed it. They dedicated themselves to following him. This is where I think that many American Christians have lost their way. Now, the global church, every, every country has its issues. Every country has, the church in every country has its strengths and has its weaknesses. Every culture has its strengths and weaknesses when it comes to Christ. And not one is better than another. But that's why we need one another so we can learn from one another. We can see where the, the holes or the blind spots in our theology are or in our approach to God. We can't think that we know everything because we don't. And when you engage in another culture, you'll quickly see that. But I think most people, they like to live in the, the shallow end. And I think many American Christians have lost their way. Here's what I mean. You know, the Bible talks about those who come to Christ for salvation. But salvation actually has three distinct parts. The first part is that we are justified. It's called justification. The moment that we trust in Jesus as the Lord and Savior of our lives, we repent, which is simply a description of what going to God looks like, where we abandon our old, our, our old ways, we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, and we are saved. Our sins are then appropriated to Christ. He imparts his righteousness to us or imputes it to us, and then when God sees us, he sees Christ. We're declared legally righteous in the sight of God. But then we are sanctified, where we become set apart for God. It's where we become holy, distinct, and set apart. There is an active sense and a passive sense. God makes us holy the moment we trust in Christ, but we're to be holy as he is holy, which is active. We are to pursue holiness and grow in holiness. And we're to grow until that third tier. Till we're glorified. So we have justified, sanctified, and glorified. And glorified is when we enter into Jesus's presence. Now, perhaps I can explain it a slightly different way. And I'm sure that many of you have heard this before, but allow me to explain it for just a moment. You see, the moment we trust in Jesus, when we are justified, we are delivered from the very penalty of sin. And when we are sanctified or growing in our sanctification, we are learning what it means to be free from the power of sin. And when we are glorified, it's when we will be freed from the very presence of sin. And what a day of rejoicing that will be. I mean, it's going to be a great time. There'll be no more sorrow when we're in the presence of Jesus. No more pain, no more tears, no more fighting, no more regretting. We will be in the very presence of our creator. 
what a day of rejoicing that will be. You know, most people I think, I meet, think that the level one is the only level that there is, but there are two more. And that's why our discipleship is so messed up, our understanding of who Jesus is. I mean, we're in level two right now, hopefully. If you're listening to this, you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're growing in that knowledge. But we all won't be glorified until we step into the presence of Jesus in eternity. And hopefully, we're becoming more like Christ. We are looking more like Christ. See, that's what discipleship really is. It's growing to look more like Jesus. It's not a program. It's a pursuit. A program might be the means that God uses, but it's really not what discipleship is. It's not about passing through a bunch of classes. Now, classes are great, but it's more of a pursuit than anything else. We will be like Christ. We are becoming more like Christ now, learning what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus. And because you are listening, that's why I want to applaud you. What you are doing is learning how to fight the good fight of faith, how to be a disciple in the world you live in every day, and how to share that faith with others in your world. And many may not know your name, but God does. He's the one who sees. You might be a common Christian, but with Christ, you're everything because he is everything. He is the Holy One. And when I say that you're everything, I'm not saying that you're the end-all, be-all, no. What I'm saying is, is that you are the one that God has chosen to embody the gospel to a lost world. Don't be a level one or stay on level one, a believer. To be a follower of Jesus, to dedicate yourself to the way I mean, don't, don't just stay on level one. Grow in that relationship with Jesus. And if I would leave you for your water bottle for the week, it's this. Here it is. Ready? Be a common Christian. That's it. Be a common Christian. Be released. Be free. Be one who is living their life according to the way. Not to be famous. Not to get some ecstatic experience. Not to do the newest thing but one who is going through the day-to-day seeking to obey in the little things so that Jesus' name might be glorified and know that God sees it and he knows you. That's your water bottle. Nothing more and nothing less. I want to let you know that this episode has been brought to you by, or brought to you in part by our new partner, new sponsor, And that's the New Living Translation. All of our scripture readings come from there. It's our primary translation. We'll use others, but that's our primary one. And we want you to be able to get an NLT Bible. And if you go to Tyndale.com and you want to get something, put in promo code NLT Bibles, and it will give you 15% off of anything at Tyndale.com. And I would love for you to have an NLT Bible in your home. So do it today. But more than anything else, I just want you to read the word. I don't care what version you read. The best version is the one you read. And if this episode has helped you, do me a favor. Share it with other people. Hit that subscribe button. 
Share this episode with other people so that they too can grow in their relationship with Jesus, so that they can have their faith watered and that they can go water their world. And if you are able, please consider partnering with us in this ministry. We are a brand new ministry and excited to be part of what God has created in such a short time. And we're looking for those ministry partners. And and here's what I mean by that. We don't just want your money. We want your friendship. We want you to be a part of our family. We want you to join the opportunity that God is placing before you. We're not doing this to get rich. We're doing this because we want to see the kingdom of God go forth. And we want to see people walking with Jesus the way that he desires us to do it. But we are looking for that financial support. We do have to live. And it is a part of our life. And we are so happy to share that need with you. Because God is opening up the doors to give you an opportunity to be blessed. And I mean that. And it's a blessing for us too, by the way, to see other people that care enough, that will sacrifice enough to be a part of what we're doing. And that means everything to us because that means you're growing and that you're becoming more like Jesus and that you are watering your world and keep going on. And here's how you do that. If you can support us on a monthly basis, we would be oh so appreciative. But go to apolloswatered.org. That's one P and two L's. A-P-O-L-L-O-S-W-A-T-E-R-E-D dot O-R-G. Hit the support button in the upper right-hand corner and then pick the best level for you. And if there's not a level on there that works for you, put in the amount, whatever you want. And you'll be glad that you did. And thank you in advance. And that's it for today. I want to thank our Apollos Water team, Kevin, Rebecca, Eliana, Donovan, and Melissa. Water your faith, water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody. It is-